Hi folks, and welcome to the first episode in a series we're running called Back to Basics. It's an opportunity to revisit some of the major tenants of crypto, from Bitcoin to wallets and security, from mining to staking. And where better place to start than right at the beginning? In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Mark Pesh about where crypto all began. Mark was there from the early days of the internet and is a professional futurist and public speaker. He co-invented the technology for 3D on the web, has written eight books and hosts the award-winning Next Billion Seconds podcast, which you should definitely check out. Today, I talked to Mark about the first time he heard about Bitcoin's precursor in 1994, the importance of peer-to-peer networking in the development of crypto, how blockchain works, and the potential for these technologies to change the way we interact online. I hope you enjoy the show. Please note that this podcast does not constitute financial product advice. You should consider obtaining independent advice from a financial advisor before making any financial decisions. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Mark, thanks so much for sharing your time with me. And uh, I'd like to start by asking you, you know, how did you come to crypto? Well, I'm pretty sure that as a regular Slashdot reader back in the days when Slashdot was a major news source for people who were in the technology space, that there was a post probably about the original Bitcoin white paper. So you're talking sort of toward the end of 2008, probably wasn't on Halloween of 2008, but would have sort of been shortly after that. And I remember taking a look at that and I had seen other things in payments, just to sort of step back a little bit. Now, I'm sort of one of the 300 researchers who were at the first conference on the web. So we're the people who, in a guess sense, did a lot of the plumbing of the web back in the early 90s. And when we all came together at CERN, which is where Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the web, worked for this conference, he opened the day. But then the first cab off the rank was this guy named David Chome, who is in cryptocurrency circles very important because he'd invented something called DigiCash, which was the first, I guess what you could think of it as internet accessible. And in this case, because it was the first web conference, web accessible digital currency. And so it was the first pass at solving a lot of these problems. And although I didn't really get it at the time, I saw later that Tim Berners-Lee was clear on the fact that for the web to be a thing, it wasn't just about all the scientists sharing data, which is what we were doing back Mm. in 1993, 94, but that it had to be a platform for commerce, which means money had to work on it. And that David Chome had actually solved this problem and he demonstrated it to all of us and it promptly went over all of our heads. (laughs) And and when did you look over your shoulder (laughs) again? Slash dot, I guess. Well, no, no, no. It would have been long before that because, again, you now then see a whole series of solutions to trying to solve this problem, right? You see PayPal as a solution to solving this problem. You see credit cards and all of the issues around security and credit cards. So you have this cascading set of of solutions to this problem, all of which are trying to shoehorn one idea of what payments are into the internet's idea of payments, which is that everything should be digital. And of course, the world that we're all in today in terms of the formal payment system is that you know there we have bank accounts and, and we connect those bank accounts to the payment system through generally a credit card or something like a credit card, whether it's PayPal, which is acting like a credit card in many of the situations. And we don't have that true internet-based system, which is what mm. David was showing. And I think when I finally understood what Bitcoin was, which was not in 2008, but probably back in 2011 or 2012, because it was popping up in my life enough, I was like, oh, this is the solution to 
to that problem that I saw 20 years ago. Yeah, the native solution, right? And I guess yeah. to spell it out for some of the listeners, one of the big things it was trying to solve was this issue of double spend. Can you tell us about 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 what double spend is and, and how, how, well, I guess Bitcoin, right? We're talking about Bitcoin here. Well, double spend has a, a better name that people are more familiar with. We're going to call it counterfeiting, Jonathan, because that's, <laughs> that's what it is, right? Yeah. We call it double spend when we're in the crypto space because we've given ourselves new names to everything. Let's not. Let's just say it's it's counterfeiting. It's like mm. it's me jamming a, a, a bill onto a copy machine, a color copier and going copy, 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 and then taking them out and spending them. Well, yes. And so, of course, we are so used to in the digital realm, you know, there's any image that you like on the internet, whether it's a meme or whatever, you hit that right mouse button, save image, and you've got a copy of it. And so we get the sense that in the digital space, copying bits is super easy, which of course makes it an issue when it comes to money. <laughs> Not very good money, is it? Because <laughs> if you can arbitrarily copy money, then your money is is probably worthless. And so, yes, yeah, so you have this idea of counterfeiting, or as we would think of it in di the digital space, copying, <laughs> which is a basic digital operation being an mm. issue. And, and this is one of the reasons why those edges didn't match. And this was one of the problems clearly that David Chum had solved in DigiCash, except again, I was far too dim in 1994 to see it. <laughs> so... Years later, I go, oh, wait. And yeah, so we now have this problem around counterfeiting or double spending. And, and the way that I came to understand it over time is that, in fact, when you're trying to spend a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, you essentially have to have everyone's approval, or at least a majority of folks, mm -hmm. have to agree that that is a real Bitcoin that you are going to spend. And if they cannot come to agreement about that, you don't get to spend that Bitcoin. And that effectively ensures that the only Bitcoins that get spent are the ones that by consensus have been agreed to be the real Bitcoins. Yeah, and I think that brings us to a broader point about how consensus works. And and really, when we talk about crypto, um, we're talking about um, a decentralized method for coming to agreement, right? A, a distributed <laughs> consensus. An Can argument, talk, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, an argument, <laughs> a digital argument. And so how, yes. why was why was Bitcoin then, um, you know, the one that, that nailed this? Because it, it really is a combination of a bunch of different pre-existing yes. technologies. Yes. And I think part of the reason, and it's funny because what I was very heavily focused on in the years leading up to Bitcoin was the explosion of peer-to-peer -peer technology. So I was teaching at university when Napster came along and I found out about it because I was uh, the faculty master of a dormitory at USC, <laughs> which was lovely because I had this beautiful suite and I also had 100 megabit internet service in my suite because it was on the university network. And the kids would come by and say, have you heard about this great new thing? There's all this music on it. And this is like sort of a week after Napster had been released. And I then fell down the rabbit hole of understanding peer-to-peer -peer networking technologies and how they were going to change things. And of course, what Bitcoin and the other crypto cryptocurrencies do is they harness that peer-to-peerness that everyone who's participating, whether it's in a sharing ecosystem about music or a sharing ecosystem about asset value, which is what Bitcoin is, mm. they're all collaborating together. They're all connected together in a way that allows them to have that digital argument in a way that allows you to achieve a result of that argument. It might be, yes, your Bitcoin is real or no, try again.
Well, yeah, I mean, in technical terms, in the end, they 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 talk about this particular solve being, you know, the the Byzantine generals' problem. Yes. Yes. Um, and and I think you know, in effect, though, where do we land? What it means is we have uh, a method for resolving dispute that argument, resolving that argument, actually coming to a, a, a finality and uh, and doing that in a way with no requirement on a centralized party or one third party that has um, ultimate control. Would that be right? Right. right. It, it, it is It is very consensus-based. Some people call it democratic. I think consensus is, is different from a democracy, even though there is some level of voting involved in that, because in general, if it's coming down to a raw vote, something's probably gone horribly wrong. Like the network in general should not have trouble authenticating that a particular Bitcoin is real. If you do, mm. then the network is probably being attacked or something in the network has gone technically wrong. Right. Mm. So this normal smooth functioning of the network, that's all happening all the time. You really don't have to worry about it. It's when those arguments occur that they're actually indicative of another problem. They're a big flashing red warning light. Yeah, exactly. It's more like an automated sift. And what you see is is the reality that um, that the consensus provides. Yeah. Okay. So so we we had this white paper and then all of a sudden um, we have Bitcoin. How do we get from that white paper to Bitcoin? What were some of the, the stepping stones in between the idea and, and the execution? And, and we'll, we'll go on from, from there. Yeah. I mean, there's really only a short period of time, right? The white paper drops at the end of October, the Genesis blocks, which are the very first data structures that articulate Bitcoin and start to build out this consensus network happen, I think, with January 9th. I believe, something like that, in 2009. So you really only have about 10 weeks there when someone, you can you can imagine whether it's Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever, but there are hamsters spinning madly in their wheels behind the scene, putting together the first working code that would create this architecture. And again, this is one reason why you have to take a look at the peer-to-peer networks, because without the software from those peer-to-peer networks, and in specific, what they call distributed hash tables, which is a way for a whole bunch of peers to know about one another so they can have this argument successfully, that that technology had to be good enough before you could actually build something like Bitcoin on top of it. And so all of the technologies for Bitcoin, and I hope I don't cause anyone to get upset with me, but the combination was novel, but the technologies themselves individually had all existed beforehand. And so it really was an integration task rather than getting things out of the whole cloth. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair and um and in some ways it's 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 a real strong suit because it means that um it was an execution problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. more than anything else then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as someone who has coded a lot, in fact, if I have a working off-the-shelf example that I can either borrow from or adapt directly, the more trustworthy I'm going to be that when I flip the on switch, the machine is not going to explode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to do a whole episode on Ethereum and and, and, and where that's got, you know, gone... <laughs> Speaking of exploding machines. Yeah, teething problems, I guess, would be a nice way to describe it, right? But Bitcoin did have some of its own versions of that, and there has been disputes over the years. I think Mm. the important thing to to note here for the listener is that this is all open source. 
Yeah, it is. And and that has meant that there's been a very active community of people, I think, on, on two sides. One are the developers who are looking to add features or to fix problems. But then on the other side, there are people who are looking in and essentially, as we would say if in computer security, red teaming it, trying to find the weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And you really want that. You actually want a team that's actively trying to find the weaknesses because when you're using this to support a financial system, when there's money on the table, you will immediately draw the attention of bad actors who will test all of your solutions. Well, I mean, not only do we have a consensus at play for the ordering of transactions, mm-hmm. we have a consensus at play for the rollout of new features mm. because in the end all the participants on this network need to agree on any code upgrades um well <laughs> and, and, and there we come to an interesting point which is yeah there's a, at some point i can't remember quite when but bitcoin was no longer one right there were there were people who disagreed, miners who fundamentally disagreed with some of the upgrades that were going to be made. I think the first ones were in block size and arguments had been made very rationally and they just weren't having a lick of it. And so what happened is it seemed very much like a Protestant reformation, right? Like part of the church breaks away and starts up its own church and it's over there. And and meanwhile, the main sort of Catholic branch, which is what we call Bitcoin today, (laughs) carries on majestically and upgrades its theology over the years. Yeah, well, that's right. And they get slightly different names um, and, and there's dispute. But I, again, you can look at this as a weakness or you can look at it as an absolute strength, which is that, um, you know, open source technology and the open source debates that you get um, cr- create strong outcomes. Yeah, you don't want to be constrained by dogma. Dogma and financial systems tend to mix very poorly. So I I, I would agree with you on that. But I think it's also a reflection on the social nature. In other words, the peer-to-peer nature of this, that this is not at its basic level a machine, but it is a collection of individuals with all of our strengths and weaknesses being amplified by that machine. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. Well, let's just fast forward a little bit, and I guess we can we can um, talk about why you think you know Bitcoin uh, and, and cryptocurrency more generally have, have become more mainstream. Well, I, look at what happened hmm, somewhere around twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen was that it's Bitcoin's utility as a payments network, a peer-to-peer payments network was overrun by its store of value, right? And the reasons for this, I think we'll probably be examining for a long time, but I'm pretty sure what happened was there was a sufficient sense of awareness around this idea of digital scarcity, that the fact that it was resistant to counterfeiting and it was Mm -hmm. the first digital thing that was resistant to counterfeiting. And as people became aware of that, it attracted an inflow of people who wanted to hold Bitcoin, which caused the price of Bitcoin to rise. And once that had happened enough, it then became an investment vehicle. People want, oh, I could put my money here, not just to be able to move it around, but because it will actually earn in value the longer I hold it. And that created a different Bitcoin than the one that you read in the white paper. The one you read in the white paper is basically a far better version of PayPal, 
And the world needed that. <laughs> the world mm. still needs that and doesn't have that. We may come to that a little bit, but it's a far better version of PayPal. It's a PayPal that's suited to an actual internet. But we don't use Bitcoin that way now because so much capital is now chasing this digital scarcity that Bitcoin embodies as its archetypical case that it's become an investment vehicle. And in that, it's become very widely known and also subject to multiple repeated speculative frenzies. Mm, that's right. And I guess when you have a code base that that um, builds in uh, that scarcity, it, it's a it's one of the first things people look to when they're when they're when they're deep diving on on it. Yeah, absolutely, and it's something that is also easy to communicate to people. If you say, "Look, at there's 20 million Bitcoin in the world right now," as of 2021, there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin in the world, and oh yeah, a third of those, by the way, are in lost wallets and they'll never be coming back again. But that's another matter. Um, you can get that idea that people will go, "Okay, so then this ha has a." finite supply. Again, once people get around that because they're not used to that in the digital realm, then you can see people acting around that the same way they act around a physical currency that's in short supply, such as gold or palladium or platinum or osmium or whatever. Mm. Osmium, my favorite. I, th I, th I think, it look, it let the cat out of the bag yes. in, in many ways. And, and one of those was, um, was uh, that that digital currencies could retain some form of value. And then you saw a proliferation of, you know, the the first run of altcoins, which were mm. Bitcoin clones, mm. uh, being open source, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, you can right-click that. Uh, so so yes. that was one cat. The other cat, though, which I think is quite fascinating, was the mechanics of that which uh, provide that organizational system, the, the decentralized and the distributed consensus, the blockchain. Mm. So all of a sudden that was the word on everyone's lips and I think yes. we should talk about it in this episode because it yeah. is, I would say, wave 1.1, you know, where Bitcoin's one. It wasn't wave two. It, it's inherent. It's, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to Bitcoin working. Um, but all of a sudden um, blockchain became talk of the town. What happened there? And, and, and let's just touch on Ethereum really briefly. Yeah. And look, it's clear that this idea of something that is tamper resistant and copy resistant actually has enormous utility value on things that have nothing to do with a currency. Mm. And it feels as though that was part of it. I think it's also that it allows you to automate a certain range of tasks that were difficult to automate before. And so there were a collection of features that people could look at and go, okay, these things we can solve with a blockchain. We've had other ways of solving them before. And I think there was a lot of hope that this was going to be a universal solution. I feel as though part of what people learned, and again, because I have been doing distributed systems for 30 years, I've always known that distributed systems have a set of trade-offs. So Digital payments networks in Australia, such as the ones that use the NPP, they settle very quickly. And uh, distributed payments networks, such as Bitcoin, is not going to settle as quickly because, as we know, we have to have that argument. And it actually takes time to yeah. have that argument. That's not a bug, but it means that it has different qualities than a rapid centralized payments network. And a gate 
I think for a while, people saw all of the advantages and they didn't see any of the disadvantages that are inherent to the design of these systems. And so there was a lot of anticipation. And then when people had more time, because that anticipation has cooled, which is a good thing. You know, it's the Gartner hype cycle, right? We were at the peak of a hype cycle for a while with blockchain. And people went, wait a minute, this isn't perfect for everything. But oh my goodness, there are some really interesting things here. Mm. Yeah. And I think the other side of this uh, emergence was um, was a response to some of the limitations that are yes. imposed by the design of Bitcoin, you know, having a very limited um, scripting function. Yeah. And you saw, uh, I guess, an opposition um, proposed by a very clever person, Vitalik huh. Buterin. Huh. Um, and that opposition was that why don't we have an, an unlimited scripting language based on, on blockchain? Mm -hmm. um, you see, a universal Turing machine, I believe, would be the the, the technical term that he is, yes, bound into block the blockchain, and and you know this is I, I I feel as though that does represent a point of no return because in the way that I I like to talk to people about it today, the true innovation here is that we now see all assets have a dual nature. I, it's the equivalent of, of particle wave duality in quantum physics, where you can take a look at a photon and say, well, that's a particle or that's a wave. Depends on how you want to look at it. Well, all assets now have this dual nature as both code and value. And that's what happened with Baterian's Ethereum. And, you know, again, first version, rough around the edges, a little buggy, but you, you kind of expect that with something that is really as ambitious as that. But it set off a huge learning process. And now, of course, there's a lot of very bright people all around the world who are starting to understand what it means to have things that are assets that also have this dual nature as code, that an asset can have interiority. Money is no longer a thing that's just printed on a piece of paper, but it actually has a mind of its own, as does a mortgage, as does a loan, as does and on and on and on. Hmm. Yeah, that is true, and I think the um, the the repercussions. I don't think they've all been felt. We're we're, no. we're still seeing so much experimentation yeah. uh, with this idea, and some of it for good, some of it for, for for not so good, or 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 misguided, or however you want to describe it. But there's there's it it, it seems like that is not going to stop that experimentation cycle. No, and, and it feels truly like it has just barely begun. You know. I'm, <laughs> If you think of so Ethereum launches in a formal way in what, 2016, right? And people start playing with it. I still think it took them a couple of years to even just start to get the, the, the map of the land. And that was restricted to a very few really quite bright programmers. And this is knowledge that is going to be diffused more broadly. And part of the way that'll be diffused is by people using it. And then people seeing those examples and going, oh, okay, wait a second, I see that example. I'm going to go and copy the code for that example <laughs> and put it to work in my own applications. And it feels like we are still very, very early in that. And particularly because it's the financial system, which is inherently conservative because it's trying to be as safe as it can around de-risking assets, it's going to be a slow process. On top of that, also, I think the design language, you know, even at the level of UI is still mm. early when it comes to how you integrate this type of system yeah. with the the existing internet, you know, uh, yes. and the experiences that we that we have on the existing internet. So we've got so many layers of of um, first mover here, yeah. um, fr from design through to scripting, and as it becomes subsumed into the general 
um, general consciousness of, of of the development community, which is happening very quickly, mm. uh, and as it becomes subsumed into the to the design processes of new applications, it will become even more uh, well intuitive and perhaps less visible. And you know, this is I think why this moment is exactly so exciting. It's because, in fact, all of the rough edges are actually very visible right now. Mm. It's raw, and that means it's actually the moment of its greatest both capacity to change, but also its capacity to change the world. And by the time it's all smoothed over and running and everything, and we don't worry about the fact that our mortgage is thinking for itself, because of course that's what a mortgage will do. That revolution in some sense is done and dusted, right? And the space between where we are now, where it is all new and some of it's working really poorly right now, <laughs> and that world where it's smooth and just sort of all happening, that journey, which is going to take 20 to 30 years, is going to be amazing. Well, I think it's a perfect point to to leave our listeners. And, and I just want to thank you again, Mark, for bringing your firsthand insight into, into this episode. And yeah, looking forward to traveling down the, that, that journey with you over the next several years to come, if not 30. <laughs> thank you very much, Jonathan. Thanks everyone for joining me on this show and for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe and review on your podcast platform of choice. And we'll make sure we take you right to the edge of the crypto frontier. And remember, you can learn more about all things crypto by visiting kraken.com slash learn. Until next time, I've been Jonathan Miller, and this has been The Crypto Frontier.